Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a remarkable individual with a remarkable story, which she has told in the recently released memoir, Sex Cult Nun, Breaking Away from the Children of God, a Wild Radical Religious Cult. Hello and welcome, Faith Jones. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm sure, you know, you, you, you get this a lot or you're aware people are thinking this sometimes. It is so crazy kind of to reconcile. You and I have just been chatting for a minute before we started rolling here. You're just like you're a, a totally like normal, reasonable person. It's so hard to square the stuff that I've been reading about your life with the person that I see before. That's not a question. That's just a... I mean, congrats. You know, actually, it kind of is. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. And it's a compliment, as I as I hope you know. Now, it would be easy to uh, to just jump right in and immerse ourselves in the story. It's a, it's a crazy story, needless to say, um, to, to lose ourselves in the details and to obscure the message. So actually, if it's OK with you, I want to skip to the end and start there and then we'll go back to the beginning to do that. Can you tell us all a little bit about your last book? Uh, you mean the one before this one? Yes. Yes. So I wrote I wrote a book called I Own Me. Mm -hmm. And that was about, it was written primarily for women, although there I have lots of male friends who've also experienced some kind of uh, sexual assault, child abuse, uh, it, and it's way more common than people think. So I wrote the book I Own Me to really break down this framework of self-ownership, ownership of your body, and how um, how one can recover from abuse. I, you know, I mean, I experienced sexual abuse as a child, physical, corporal punishment abuse. Um, you know, I've experienced forcible rape, coercive rape, um, you know, sexual assault in many different levels, and you know, it. <sighs> how do you recover from something like that? How do you really reclaim yourself, your ownership of your body? For a lot of people, um, uh, especially if you grew up in a family or in a cult like I did, where you know healthy boundaries were really erased, if you grew up in domestic abuse situations, um, very coercive controlling family type situations, there's many situations that exist um, within cults and outside of cults, just in society at large, where these are very big issues, it can be very hard to know how to create healthy boundaries because you have not seen them modeled. So one of the key uh, pieces of this framework that I created, which, um, you know, I've started calling it the 10, uh, you know, the 10 immutable principles of conduct, because they're really these, the, the, just the absolute baseline don't do it moral standard. Right? And, um, you know, you can see the the image behind me. And I, I have the image on my TEDx talk where I walk people through the framework. And I'm just like, okay, this is where moral boundaries come from. I own my body. So therefore, you know, you can't rape me, murder me, 
assault me. And frankly, you can't grab my butt without my permission because that's my property. <laughs> okay. Here, here. So just this, it, when I explain it to people, it's incredibly simple. You know, I, I, if I own my body, I own my creations. Therefore, you know, don't steal from me. Slander is destruction of my reputation, which is something I've created that has value, right? So all of our laws, everything we consider moral laws actually fall into one of these uh, four rings in this framework, one of these four levels, violations of the body, violations of creation, your creation, what I produce, right? Violations of the deal and uh, violations of what I call the effect, okay? Um, and we're talking about the deal just... When I, when I got clear on this, I was able to understand my past. I was able to understand what had happened in the group. I was able to understand the violations. I was able to have conversations with my mother. So I was born into it. She joined it when she was very young about, you know, the violations that she'd experienced and, and what was wrong with, you know, what was allowed to be done to me, right? So we were able to have a really open, honest and productive conversations about these topics because we had a standard now that we could look at and say, okay, I see when the when the leadership did this, this was violating this right that I have, right? And it when you get clarity on things, especially um, especially people who have been abused, um, they're one of the big issues that you have to deal with and that can keep people from seeking help and uh, oftentimes, you know, talking to therapists or whatever is a sense of guilt, a sense of, well, I agreed to it or it was my fault or I shouldn't have gone to that party or I got drunk or, you know, they, they carry this sense of guilt that they were somehow responsible for it. Or if as a child, you know, they were invited to do something and they agreed to do it. OK, but when you understand the principles of the deal, right, that there are two fundamental principles, particularly in that, um, that are, you know, this concept of undue pressure and the concept of uh, mental capacity, which is what really applies to children in any kind of uh, sexual interaction with children, right, is that they do not have the mental capacity to understand the implications of their action. They do not know what that what they're giving away, yeah. what that is going to happen, you know, the trauma that's go that will create in the future. And the other one is the undue pressure. So when we're talking about cults, when we're talking about uh, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, um, that's one of the key things that I identified is this concept of undue pressure and power disparity. And anytime there is a power disparity, um, there is the potential in some cases, it's an absolute thing, like with children, right? But in other cases, uh, maybe a boss and a secretary, right? There's a potential for a violation that, to exist. So you have to be extra careful and create processes so that each person really, truly feels not under pressure in any way, right? So, so that's taking us to the the uh, that's taking us to the end, right? The right. realizations that I had. Um, and that that's really where I where I go now. It's what I continue to teach. Um, I, I in that first book, I share how you know some of the. I'm kind of a do-it-yourself sort of a person, <laughs> so I spent years doing you know self-help and different types of therapies, and and I and I did find a few key people uh, that had very helpful processes. So I put some of the most helpful processes that people can do for themselves in that book as well as a way of, 
uh, reprocessing traumatic events. Um, when you can certainly do that with a therapist or a coach, uh, it's it's a helpful to do that with someone at least the first few times you do it. Um, but I like to give people tools because I am, you know, uh, I think part of the effect of this was becoming very independent. You know, I'm a corporate attorney. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I never wanted to be in a position like I was as a child where I was, you know, destitute and, you know, basically begging uh, to try to support my, my mother and, you know, my two younger siblings. And so I, I, you know, have created this world where I like to be very independent and self-reliant. Um, make sure I can take care of myself, make sure I can take care of others if I need to. And that's really so much of what I share with others. How do you set yourself free from um, oppression, bondage, discrimination? How do you set yourself up so that you can stand up for yourself? Um, because I wasn't always this way. I mean, even just the fact that I experienced so much abuse and rape and and sexual uh, issues is because I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I didn't know I could. I didn't know um, I wasn't allowed to. And then even after I left the group, I continued to struggle because uh, everything I had been taught was to be submissive, to be yielded. Um, you know, it's just taught so many false paradigms that I had to overcome. So I'm hoping that by this work, um, giving people kind of just these very simple principles that are the fundamental underlying principles of society, of the law, of everything, that we can I can help them kind of jumpstart a little bit, make their journey hopefully a little less difficult. I mean, it's it's never easy to to do that and to recover, but hopefully, you know, kind of just as a guide or a teacher to say, hey, this was what worked for me, so maybe it will work for you too, you know. Or and it's that passion about being like, I am not going to let this beat me. I am not going to just stay broken. I am going to um, figure it out <laughs> yeah. and heal, you know, it's and that's a, that, that I think is the other key piece. It's, I mean, you clearly have a very rigorous mind. It's not surprising that you are uh, a lawyer and a successful one. And uh, you would need one, one would need a rigorous mind to unpack the many strands and threads of things that, you know, to, to be the put together person you are today. It was going to take a, a system because there was a lot there to unpack. So that's the end. Let's go back to the beginning. Just the title. It's a provocative book with a provocative title. It's called Sex Cult Nun. Let's tackle that right off the bat. You are the titular sex cult nun. Why would you Why would you think or have thought at one point in your life of yourself in those specific terms? So that story is actually kind of funny. It's kind of, to me, it was tongue in cheek. It yeah. was a humorous title. Um, and people don't recognize that often, but um, it actually, I came up with it. So I went on to work at Skadden Arps, which is one of the biggest law firms in the world. I was doing, you know, billion dollar international M&A deals. And I was working out of Hong Kong and Los Angeles. And then I, uh, I decided I wanted to leave and I, you know, because I want to create things in the world, not just kind of push papers for big corporations. So, you know, I had created an invention and, you know, just, I have this passion to build things that help people. So I, after I left Skadden, I, you know, you need to detox, you need to de-stress from that very high stress environment. I decided to do a 10 day meditation retreat in the mountains in Sri Lanka, in Kandy is this tiny, tiny little Buddhist monastery up there. And 
um, I was like, I'm going to learn how to meditate because <laughs> I'm the kind of person that, you know, I can't stand in line at immigrations without a book to read. So <laughs> uh, I up there, I saw these little nuns, you know, there were these uh, little Buddhist nuns and they're wearing their red robes and maybe 12, 13. And they sit down at the plastic folding table and, you know, doing some homeschooling for a few hours and they'd be cleaning with buckets of water and and chanting scriptures for hours. And I was like, this looks so familiar to me. Why is this so familiar? I mean, this just like, it's like, oh my God, I grew up like this. <laughs> I grew up like this, except there was a lot of sex involved. And so I said, okay, someday when, I, when I'm gonna write a book and I'm gonna call it my life as a sex cult nun. It was kind of a tongue in cheek title and you know, it ended up sticking. Yeah. But um, people don't understand the fundamental aspect of it is that they just look at kind of the, like you said, the titular sensational mm -hmm. sex cult part. But in reality, being in this group was a very controlled environment. It was very much living in a religious order. You gave up all possessions. Um, you gave up really your rights to yourself, your rights to your body. Uh, you lived communally. You didn't work or hold jobs. You spent hours a day in religious study, memorization, uh, teaching, praying, singing, chanting. Um, you uh, would go out, you know, it was a very aggressive proselytizing organization. Um, and, you know, so when, if you look at like, say, how a group of nuns live, that's it's all of those things, except they're forbidden to have sex. And for us, it was a it was almost a duty. Right. It was like you had to do that as a way of uh, sacrificing for God. And so, you know, that was the big flip. But in many other ways, um, it was very similar. So. So let's uh, go over for the uninitiated. You're raised in a group that was founded by your grandfather, first known as Children of God, then the Family of Love, then simply the family at its height, uh, 10,000 members. I mean, at any given time, many, many more spread over out. Over 100 countries. Yeah, exactly. Very Wa Yeah, the Phoenix family, group. Joaquin Phoenix and River Phoenix's family were involved with this at some point, so people may have some familiarity if they know their story. In a nutshell, because it is very... It comes. It's very Bible based. I I was raised in a Catholic environment. It's not the strictest of uh, Christian environments. But how did the message that you, uh, uh, that you were raised with deviate from the conventional Christianity that many or most of us might have some familiarity with? So it started with a concept that my grandfather came up with long before he uh, created the group called, uh, it was basically a, a form of Christian communism, mm -hmm. right? Where he said in the early church, um, you know, in Acts, everybody left, they dropped out of the system, right? This was, it started in around 1968. So, you know, the 60s period of the hippies and everything, this was very popular uh, rhetoric, right? So dropped out of the system, they lived together communally, they shared everything. Um, and so he was trying to, he came from a long line of evangelists, very successful evangelist pastors. And he was trying to preach this in the churches <laughs> at that time. And the churches were not keen on leaving everything and, and uh, you know, so he was not getting a very good reception. And then uh, his, his children, my father and, and my aunts, uncles, they were also uh, out very aggressively proselytizing. We called it witnessing, speaking, singing about Jesus. And they ended up in California doing that with the hippies. And um, there, my grandfather really found his 
target market, I guess you could say, because they had already dropped out and left society. They were already, you know, loved anything saying bad against the man. And yeah, all they were, that, half, right? they were halfway so, there. Yeah, right. And so, you know, and he gave them vision. He gave them purpose. He gave them, you know, a place to go. He gave them family. So when the few first few people that joined, like the woman who was my father's first wife, who was my second mother. So my father had two wives. Um, she was one of the very first that joined. Um, and, you know, she was coming out of the church. She was joining from a church. This was, you know, one of the only religious groups that would take her even as a woman and let her be a missionary. So it was, you know, it started out, um, they were praised a lot, you know, you're getting these hippies clean and off drugs and, you know, serving God. And, uh, but then it began to twist, right? So, um, there began to be, you know, sort of allegations of kidnapping and this and that, which wasn't going on, but parents were freaking out because their kids were, you know, running away at, in their teen as teenagers. Um, and so basically what happened, my grandfather, uh, but my grandfather had always had, uh, I mean, I think it's part of, you know, public record, his own daughter wrote a book about it, you know, that he was cheating on his wife. Um, and so he, he had sexual appetites, I guess, that were not... Uh, were not okay. For instance, uh, he he in, in his writings he wrote about uh, being sexually abused by his nanny when he was a few years old and how enjoyable that was, right, for him. And uh, so he ended up doing similar things to his own daughter when she was young. So this was even before the group started, right? And so as the group progressed in the seventies. When people first joined, like when my brother, mother first joined, there was no sex unless you were married. You weren't even allowed to hold hands. It was very, very strict, very militaristic. So people were not joining because this was a fun thing to do, right? They were incredibly idealistic. And, but then he began to have these revelations. Um, uh, a younger woman joined who he wanted as a second wife, all right? She became his secretary and she took the name Maria. And he began to have these revelations about how um, the commandments are done away with. We have no laws except love. So it was called the law of love. God's only law is love. And that means everything under the law, including um, sex outside of marriage and even sexual interactions with children. Everything's all okay as long as it's done in love, right? With God's love. And so, uh, and he took quite a bit of time preparing his followers for this before, you know, really launching it. And and then that led into kind of more and more extreme doctrines, um, right? So there was this sense of, well, children should be raised with a happy, healthy, non-judgmental, non-shameful attitude towards sex. We should be very open about it. Um, and that was very common in, in that time period too. But the difference was, you know, it's like, and, and this is what I go into in my writing and my teaching is like, where do you draw the line there? What is that line, right? Because they were thinking, we're letting kids just explore and do this and that and the other. Um, but what what is the wrongness that comes when it's an adult touching a child inappropriate like, like that, right? Like, where does the, how does that, where does the violation line occur between just allowing kids to, um, you know, grow up and not shaming them about sex or their sexual organs versus hypersexualizing them, right? In a way that's really negative. Um, and then the other issue was, you know, uh, after, you know, he had this sort of one wife, the wife of one is the wife of everyone. 
Um, so polygamy was fine. It was encouraged, but you didn't have to do it. Uh, and then, but you did have to share with other members of the group and then became this doctrine called flirty fishing. So if you look at the cover of the book, it's like this hook, hooking this, this symbol of womanhood, right? The feminine symbol. And um, that's really, it's about like exploiting women and using women in this way. So they were, women were told that they had to sacrifice their body and sleep with people outside the group to get them to receive Jesus or to join as converts or to bring them on as donors, right? to get them to donate to the group, to support the group, because we didn't have jobs. And, um, and, you know, for some women, maybe this wasn't such a trial, or maybe they liked the person, or maybe it was fun. And other women really, really uh, didn't want to do it. Uh, married couples were really struggling with, you know, both the men and the women with having their wives go out and sleep with other men. Um, and, you know, women who wouldn't or who tried to refuse were, you know, there was like, uh, so my grandfather write these things called mo letters. There was mo letters that would be publicly written about them, shaming them, right? And, and they would be in trouble for being unyielded to God. So what was at the core concept of this, right? Was this sense that you didn't own yourself. You didn't own your own body. Therefore, they could tell you to do anything, sleep with someone, uh, separate you from your kids, your, your spouse, um, make you do anything. And, and, and you just had to do that because your body wasn't even your own anyways, right? You didn't even have, you didn't have any rights in this sense. Um, and that really years later, you know, when I left the group and I was like, how did these people get into this? How did they, um, how did they let this happen? How did they allow themselves to be led on, um, to suffer the abuses that they suffered? I mean, you know, you know, my mother was pimped out. <laughs> she was told to marry my father. She was told to marry somebody else before that, right? Like, like, how do you let this happen? And then like, how do you let these things happen to your children? You know? Um, and when I really, I, when I've really got to, I said, I realized that was the core. It was undermining a people, a person's sense of ownership in themselves, therefore taking away their right to stand up for themselves, to stand up for their own property. And, and once you've undermined a person's core sense of ownership in themselves, then, you know, of course you don't own anything. Of course you shouldn't get paid for the work you do. Of course, all your hard labor should just be for free, right? Like, you see, it just, it just, all of those things that are boundaries all get washed away once you hit that core primary, right? And the, on the flip side, you know, the sense of understanding a sense of ownership. If I say I own myself, I own my body, I own my thoughts, I own my actions. If I fully own myself, then I'm also fully responsible for what I do. I cannot separate those two things, full ownership and full responsibility. And when you undermine a person's sense of ownership, then it's easy for them to say, well, you know, I'm not responsible. It's not my fault. I'm just doing what God said. I'm just doing what the leader said. You see, so then they give over their sense of moral responsibility for their actions as well. And um, it's just a psychological kind of fact, I guess you could say. And, you know, and, and that's that two sided coin ownership and responsibility go together. And so that is, I think, what was so dangerous about and and allowed people to accept to engage in, um, you know, sexual abuse of children 
um, and all kinds of things that I think just people in normal society wouldn't do. And then, of course, you had the isolationism, right? So we were isolated from society. Um, we didn't like, you know, we didn't go to school. We didn't have jobs and and we weren't supposed to uh, really intake outside content. We weren't supposed to read outside books and stuff like that. So when you're also, and this was before the internet, you have to remember, and a lot of us were living in foreign countries where, um, you know, you learned to speak the language maybe somewhat, but you weren't like reading it or able to watch the news in it or anything like that. So you could be isolated in a way, which I don't think is really possible today, unless you take away everybody's phones, um, which is probably also a reason the group kind of, you know, uh, dissipated. Became international, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that just <laughs> those, are, those are some of the, uh, I guess, doctrines, like you said, that were not consistent with what you would consider normal, you know, typical Christianity. Right, right. And he was able to get that far off because he didn't have a moral standard. He could just be like, uh, I got this revelation from God. I had this crazy dream about nuns, you know, uh, in, you know, bikinis and they're called the nuns of love, right? Or having sex with goddesses of all these countries. I mean, he had these crazy far out dreams. And I think that was kind of part of the appeal was that he was so uh, eccentric that it was entertaining for people. But, um, but he, and he could twist the scriptures and he would back up everything he said with Bible verses, right? He would twist the meaning, take them out of context, change their meaning to back it up. And that's what happens. And you can do that to any religious text. Um, if you don't have a set of principles that you're like, if this is violating this principle, I already know it's not correct. Right. Right. I have a lot of follow-up questions to what you just, <laughs> to what you just said, but you know, let me start with where you left off. Two part question. Um, do you have any relationship whatsoever to Christianity nowadays or, or any, you know, conventional religious faith at all? If I'm not being uh, too personal there, my question really centers on this. It's a quote from the Gospel of Luke that you include in the book. Now, I'm uh, a lapsed Catholic, but I, I, I studied a decent bit of theology. I think I know more than the average churchgoer, not an expert in any way, shape or form, but I'm not familiar with this quote. And there's different translations that get it slightly different ways, but the, the general thrust is consistent. If anyone comes to me, me being God, and does not hate their father, the version I see, and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And this seems like this would be a bedrock concept of a lot of the things that you were just talking about. Now, I'm sympathetic to religious people. I'm close to many religious people. You can always explain away an uncomfortable passage in any religious text if you like the general spirit of it, at least as you understand that religion. But what the hell? Like, what sort of God would say such a thing and mean it? Um. There, there's, I think there's multiple parts to your question. There, yep. Okay. One is that, uh, and if you, when you read the book, you'll see this um, time and time again, I'm going through some traumatic or difficult experience. And, you know, there's just really no one for me to turn to, um, you know, my parents betray me, my shepherds, my friends, like, so it's a sense of like, God is my only uh, person. God is my person, right? So I turned to God for help. 
And so I always had a very, uh, um, I guess, personal relationship with God. And, and that was managed to exist even outside the group. So like many people throw everything out, right? And after I left, I said, okay, well, I, I don't know if anything I was taught was true. You know, it could, might all be lies, but um, I do know I have this. I have this sense of a God that is beautiful and, you know, um, creative being, okay? I may not know much more about God than that, right? Basically, that was my sense of a place I eventually got to where I was like, I don't know if anything that I have been taught is true. And I think it's really good for people to get to that place where you have to start kind of and re-examine all of your beliefs and re-examine them with logic and say, is this true? Is this real? And I was able to do that. So I would say for a long time, I just say I'm spiritual, not religious. I mean, that's kind of how I would phrase it. Uh, and I really just kind of put away any kind of religion, didn't go to church, didn't do any of that stuff. And I was just, um, but I still had a deep sense of, you know, God, like the beauty in the universe and the beauty in the world and love and, and this kind of thing. Uh, only I'd say in recent, just recently, you know, I, challenged by somebody, I said, okay, well, I will go back and start re-examining the Bible verses and seeing if like, are these passages consistent without this weird layer of interpretation that I was given, right? Can I go and examine them and say, is this true or not, you know, without an interpretive aspect. And so that to me is, is a, is kind of a whole other journey that I'm participating in right because instead you know for a long time it was just easier it was such a trigger issue for me to just be like i'm just not gonna look at it right sure um but now to say okay well let me examine it and say do i agree with these things or not do i agree with this passage was this interpreted correctly what was the context what was the cultural context what was the actual you know even and in my book i talk about doing this specifically for my grandfather's doctrine of the law of love where, you know, I've been taught all these verses. It was just so cemented in my mind that this was reality. And I went back and began to look at all those verses. I was looking using like a, a Bible program, you know, to say, what are the, what are the original Greek and Hebrew words mean? Okay. Because the translations into English, into any language, I mean, and I've, I speak multiple languages, you lose so much in translation and so much can be twisted and the meanings of words change. So like when you ask that, like this concept of hate your parents, right? Um, is that what the original Greek word said? I don't know. So unless I go look at it and say, mm -hmm. this is what it said, this was the context it was set in, right? I can't give you a definitive for that, right? Um, and, and that's where I think a lot of people fall uh, out is that they have an idea they already want to be true. They have a concept and they're really just using it to back themselves up rather than going in there and examining it um, critically and saying, what is this actually saying? You know, it's like, and, and, and that's what I watched my father, my grandfather do my father and all of these people, you know, they created this whole ethos and this concept and they really just, picked and chose 
um, and back, backed it up with that, right? Because, you know, there's another verse in the Bible that says, honor your father and mother, right? And there's lots of verses right. in the Bible that say all kinds of other stuff. True, so, true. Yeah, it's a commandment, you know, a and, commandment and if I'm not mistaken. This is the this is the issue. And then unless I go and, and, you know, this is the lawyer side of me. Right? right. I'm like the logic, the lawyer, I'd have to go back. I'd have to research it. I'd have to look at the original meaning and the context and everything before I could say this is what I think this actually means. And and most people don't do that. Most people just, you know, they accept it at face value. They accept what their teacher, their guru, their pastor is telling them. And well, but if I can interrupt you, but there's two separate issues there because yes, there's of course what the, the author intended, what perhaps even God divinely inspired the author to write down. But if the person who is uh, trying to direct you, trying to lead you, trying to mentor you, trying to teach you, trying to control you is using it in the spirit in which it appears on the page in the current uh, vernacular, well, then the issue of what it originally meant becomes sort of secondary. So I think you you pinpointed the real issue, which was someone trying to control you. Yeah. Anytime. And this is what I talk about in the framework. And this is why this framework is pretty much the anti-cult, anti-guru framework, right? If you really understand this, you cannot do that. You can't go that way. Um, and, and you as a person cannot try to be manipulating and pushing others to do it either. And that I don't care if that's a political uh, group or, um, you know, a, you know, I mean, just every kind of a family, a family head, whatever you may want to call it. Right. So it's the issue of using something like that, using God, using scriptures to manipulate and control other people. That is the issue. Instead of giving them the chance to say, you know, you truly own yourself. You get to choose what to do. This is what I think the interpretation is, but you should really go because this is your moral responsibility. You better go figure out what that actually means. <laughs> you don't have the luxury of saying, um, let me just follow this person because, you know, yeah, I'll just give over my sense of moral responsibility. No, if you're going to actually do that or teach that, then you really have a serious responsibility to figure out what it actually meant and to say, is Am I applying these principles? Am I, if I'm applying these principles, I will not be violating other people, right? If I really truly understand the principles, I won't violate their rights in their body. I won't violate their right in their creation. I won't create bad deals. So all of this aspect of relationship, uh, emotional blackmail is what we call it, is utilizing undue pressure. So what is that? What is it when we utilize undue pressure? Um, using things like God. God wants you to do this. Uh, you will be punished if you don't. Okay. Huge one. Roles. This is your duty, your role as a woman, as a man, as a husband, as a, as a uh, daughter, right? That using that role, that's peer pressure. Instead of really accepting each person has their own free will, right? And their own freedom to choose about themselves and their body. Um, what are some like guilt? Guilt is another great one. Guilt, uh, Catholic background, right? Uh, guilt is literally undue pressure, which is negative pressure, um, trying to get someone to do something they would not otherwise do without giving them something that is a free, fair exchange, right? Like if I say, 
uh, hey, nice mic there. You got, you know, I'm going to buy that from you. I'm going to offer you a hundred bucks. Okay. And you might say, oh, I only paid 54. So sure. hundred bucks sounds like a great deal. <laughs> Here you go. Right. Um, or you might say, I paid a thousand dollars for this. I'm not giving it to you for a hundred bucks. And I'm like, well, if you don't sell it to me for a hundred bucks, then, you know, God's going to give you leprosy. Um, <laughs> right? You see, and you believe me, right? What have I just done? I've applied pressure to get you to do something that's not a good deal for you, right? Right. But I'm using something else to force you to do it. So that's a violation. And and that's what all of these people are doing. Using religion, using God, mm -hmm. using family relationships. Um, anytime you're doing that, you are manipulating somebody in a negative way like that to get them to do something you want them to do, to turn over their time, turn over their money, turn over their control of themselves, give you sex, right? I mean, there's whole schools of this where, you know, you, the game and all of this kind of stuff, teaching guys how to get women to give them sex by using negative manipulation rather than actually working on themselves and becoming such a great, awesome person that the woman wants to have sex with them. <laughs> See? Take that, Neil Strauss. I Sort of two, two related questions on that. Um, first, so you were raised outside of the system, most of us knew, and also raised in large part outside of the country. So you were indoctrinated in a certain way, but we were all indoctrinated in maybe more subtle and less encompassing ways. But I'm just curious, uh, first impressions of America when you got here, and I mean, to what extent do you still think you have sort of a unique take on how this society that we're in works compared to how those of us who were raised here see it? It's uh, a great question. <laughs> I would say, and this is one of the things I bring out in my book, and one of the reasons I wrote it in the first place, right? Because I literally kept this a secret for 18 years. Um, but seeing how prevalent these subtle ideas still exist in our society at large of women, um, this concept of, you know, that causes women to, to subjugate themselves or to be seen as lesser, right? Um, it still is very strong in society. And we have, uh, they say like a third of women in America have been sexually assaulted. Uh, and that's just an astronomical number. That is insane. That is millions upon millions upon millions of women right here in this country. So that is absolute demonstrable proof that we, don't have a concept of truly seeing women's bodies as their own, of true self-ownership. And this is the fault of, I mean, I have to say that, you know, women were considered property for a very long time. And so even though the laws changed, that underlying subconscious beliefs get passed down in other ways messages about what it means to be a good woman versus a good man or what you're allowed to do or touch or so on and so forth about between men, women and men you can see this really clearly in the media um if you ever watch like an old john wayne movie um it's it's quite distressing uh for me but it but i still see that prevalent everywhere right and and i'll be honest with you when I began to talk about this, so many of my friends who grew up in normal, regular households, you know, you'd never know they had experienced any abuse. They came to me and said, yeah, I was sexually abused as a child. 
so many. So it is endemic in our society, which is why I think we have to talk about these things. In the cult, this was, it was basically uh, approved of, right? So it was out in the open, but in society, it's everywhere still. We're just not talking about it enough. We're not looking at it enough. Um, the other thing that I think I see more clearly than other people, just because I grew up with it, is when people are accepting dogma about something um, and they're not really examining the facts. They're not open to questioning everything, right? Um, and this is true of our scientists. And you can see this kind of with the history of science when we look at and say, okay, and, and history of science, history of medicine, right? There's basically this trajectory or this timeline where someone spots an anomaly. They say, okay, this theory that we have, physics did this many, many times, continues to do it, right? This theory we have doesn't fit what we're seeing. It doesn't fit the facts. It doesn't fit the anomaly. So um, somebody espouses a new theory and that theory is completely rejected. The person is demonized um, and but over time, just the body of evidence builds up to such an extent that the community is forced to take notice of it. It becomes sort of slowly adopted. And then that becomes the new dominant doctrine, dogma theory. Right. And um, I see this a lot in, in every facet of life where in society, I mean, I think this is kind of a part of the human condition, perhaps. But to think that we're not subject to it and, and especially scientists can be i find quite uh blind to their own preconceived notions and assumptions and they don't really always question their own assumptions and it's often the people out there uh doing kind of the radical uh it's following the anomaly mm -hmm. not the not the the body of evidence that always moves us forward in science and in society because we're saying wait this doesn't fit how do you see and, that? I'm sorry to interrupt. How do you see that nowadays? The stuff you're talking about, it sounds like you're talking about Galileo kind of stuff, but you're clearly talking about stuff that's still happening in a contemporary way. Can you be more specific there? Oh, yeah. I mean, it happens all the time, right? I mean, it happens in, uh, and that's why gathering enough evidence is really important, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so most people don't realize that people thought ulcers came from stress. Do you think ulcers come from stress? Most people still do. Yeah. 20, 30 years ago, this guy proved conclusively that ulcers do not come from stress. Ulcers are a very specific type of bacteria that ends up in there and you can, and you can cure it. So, um, you know, there was the theory that our brains didn't change, you know, after childhood, right? We just kept losing brain cells. We didn't get new brain cells. Now we conclusively know through neuroplasticity that we do continue to grow new brain cells, right? Um, and this is why it's so important to follow the science, right? What's happening right now in the world with all of this stuff? Um, there's just such different... I see this happening more in America than I've ever seen it before. I think everybody that... Uh, so I grew up not only in a cult, I grew up in communist countries. That's right. I grew up in China. I lived in Kazakhstan after the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and so I have seen societies that uh, basically are, uh, you know, controlling the media, 
controlling the message, controlling what gets out, not allowing debate. And for all of us who grew up overseas, I mean, you'll see it in, in you know, <laughs> expats and immigrants and stuff like that. They all talk about this. We're like, wow, we have never seen America like it is today. These incredibly polarized groups of people, um, people really on both sides, not necessarily looking truly at the evidence, um, this kind of sense of, it's just such a, it's a belief, you know, it's just yes. this belief and faith that, that my party is right and that we are right. And instead of really, really saying, and I've always been kind of like, okay, well, I agree with you here. Um, but actually I agree with you here, right. Or, I, you know, this is accurate. I think by the facts that that's not accurate. And this one is accurate here. And, you know, instead of this, um, looking objectively at each issue. I think that's what I really wish that we would do as a society, but I think social media and there's just many factors that have polarized people into these extreme camps where they don't look at or consider arguments or anything that comes from the other side, even yeah. if it is based in fact. And I think that is so dangerous that's happened in our society. Yeah, well, I, it, honestly, it might just be as simple as uh, I keep on referring to, it's a movie from the 1970s, but Network, just the idea of when you have a profit-driven media or social media, people prefer hearing things that confirm their biases than hearing actual pure information. And it's 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 so amazing. Have, mm -hmm. Go ahead. We used to have a law in America, which I really think we should get back to, yeah. and it was um, basically this fairness of information, where if you brought on an expert that spoke in this, you had to bring on someone else who would give the other side, right? And, and I mean, some people are like, well, that's ridiculous, you know? And then you have to bring on the flat earth people who say the earth is flat, right? I am like, okay, yeah, you could take it to that extreme, but really it's, um, even if you did bring on the flat earth people, he would still just look kind of silly, right? Because most people have traveled and we know the earth is not flat, right? But it's that concept of, of, creating people who are analytical thinkers by saying, look at it this way, look at it that way, right? And that's the whole job of law school. That's really what law school teaches you to do. It teaches you to think analytically and critically. And we really um, don't have that in our society. And I think that that is a huge, huge issue. Um, and that goes to, you know, how are we educating people? And, um, you know, is it a matter of just, basically being told this is the answer memorize it and then write it down on the test and you get an a right <laughs> and and that is that's the education system sadly to a large extent now i think there are schools you know oftentimes private schools or higher education and stuff where they do focus on a more analytical uh approach to education um and i think that's what we need more of in our society we should be teaching analytical thinking we should be teaching the basics foundations of law um, and society, you know, from the time kids are very young, shouldn't be something you have to wait till law school to, you know, get a grasp on. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of of, so. uh, of higher education, it's, you know, obviously a turning point in your life, putting your past behind and, you know, claiming your, your identity and yourself for yourself is applying to college. I'm just going to guess that your entrance application essay to Georgetown was very different from all the other ones that kids submitted that year. Is that fair to say? Um, I actually did not mention the call. I see. I did not say anything about that. And remember I told you that I kept that a secret. That's right. Yeah. So um, there was a sense in myself that I 
I didn't want to have to discuss, explain, uh, apologize for, mm-hmm. um, you know, be pitied. I didn't want any connection with that whole side of my life. I wanted people to see me for the woman I was making of myself, like see who I am right now. Am I articulate? Am I smart? Am I, you know what I mean? And not factor in like, oh, she had this thing and this craziness and this terrible life. Right. So I, I actually did not speak about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. I didn't put it in my applications. Um, when I came to America, I was already in my early twenties when I wanted to go to college. So I was already late, you know, by that period I'd lived, I said already a whole life and, you know, lived in many countries, had a lot of experience. So when I came here, I, uh, I, I had, put myself through high school with a correspondence course, even though that wasn't really approved of. Um, When I was a teen, my mother got me the books and I I just studied by myself. And so I, but it still didn't give me a, uh, an academic record. (laughs) Okay. So when I I wanted to apply to college and they were like, well, you're a very interesting candidate because I could talk about having lived all over the world and doing volunteer work and, you know, I did volunteer work with orphanages in Kazakhstan and I, earthquake relief in Taiwan, right? I mean, I, I had this broad basic experience, but um, I didn't have an academic record, so they couldn't compare me to other students. So I went to community college for a year. They said, go to community college, you know, get a, uh, get a transcript <laughs> so we can compare you yeah. and then, you know, reapply. So that's what I did. And yeah. then I ended up transferring to Georgetown. So yeah, the extracurriculars are great. You just need, yeah. you need grades. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <see>. exactly. <laughs> like great, lots of great experience out there, but <laughs> we need to see those A's. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- that's, that's great. You know, I, a book like this, it's, you know, sort of apt to wind up with, you know, but things I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot, but in ways that I think you've uh, amply demonstrated just over this course, uh, the course of this conversation, you know, the story is, it's not a story of, of victimhood. It's a story of, uh, of self empowerment. And um, that's why, from beginning to end, I, I definitely recommend people give it a look. Thank you so much for your time and for this book. It's called Sex Cult Nun. Uh, thanks again, Faith Jones. Thank you, Mike. Mm-hmm.